Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up on The Andrew Lawton Show, why Justin Trudeau is trying to avoid parliamentary oversight, misinformation legislation, and Conservative leader Andrew Scheer on Canada, China, and the WHO. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to the Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Good to have you with us for the beginning of another week, another pandemic week, although one with a lot more of a sobering backdrop as we look at just the horror that took place over the weekend in and around Portapeak, Nova Scotia. I'm going to say right from the outset that I don't have a lot to say on this. In fact, I don't have anything to say on it at this point. I, I'm a firm believer in the fact that with these sorts of tragedies, you always need to wait to see what the facts are before trying to extrapolate any sort of message or idea from it. I think that the most important thing from my perspective is to accept that it's a tragedy, accept that it's horrific, and to pray and think of the victims, the survivors, and those in the communities impacted. You know, I'm not one of these people that has this uh, deep, long-standing connection to the East Coast. In fact, I'd only been there for the first time back uh, less than a year ago, I think, or two years ago, rather. But it's an amazing community of people around there. And, you know, I was in Nova Scotia just in February and even in Halifax, which is a larger city. You've got that community mentality, that small town mentality. And, and to have something like this happen anywhere in Canada is horrible. To have it happen in places like these that feel like they are just so insular and so safe is something that I, I can't even imagine. So if you are in one of these communities, if you know anyone impacted, I'm so, so terribly sorry for your loss. And also to the Constable Heidi Stevenson for her passing. We thank you for your service very much. And that's not just for me, that's from all of us at True North, and I'd venture a guess to say pretty much all of us listening into this show. It was awful, and I, I was glad that there was a response from all of the leaders in Canada about it, people saying, listen, you know, we're just sending our, our thoughts and prayers out there. It's so difficult for a lot of people to make sense of these things. And, and like I said, there are so many questions. There are more questions than answers. I don't know if there's going to be more to say about it on Wednesday's show or, or even next week, uh, but I'm sure that something will come up. But again, this is much bigger than politics, much greater than politics. So I wanted to say that right from the outset of the show before we move on to uh, the other things that we are going to talk about. And there are a lot of them. There are still a lot of things going on in, in spite of all of that. And most notably this standoff between Andrew Scheer and Justin Trudeau about when Parliament will reconvene, how it will reconvene, what it will look like, how often the meetings will be. And let me first say, I, I don't think that politicians are as important as they think they are, generally speaking. But it is important to have parliamentary oversight when government is spending money. So the role of Parliament, which normally I would just say, all right, get off our backs, guys, is actually a pretty significant one. And that's why I've been covering all of the political press conferences. It's why I've been covering Andrew Scheer's press conferences, because as leader of the official opposition, he is in many cases the roadblock between what the government wants to do and complete, uh, or so let me clarify, to what the government really wants to do as far as unfettered, unrestrained, and what the government can get away with doing. And we saw this a few weeks back. So 
And that's not just about Andrew Shearer. That's the role of the official opposition in general. Even though Justin Trudeau, with the other parties like the NDP and the Bloc Québécois, can have a, a majority in the House, there are a lot of things that require unanimity. And that's where you get into what's happening in the last few days. So Justin Trudeau is content to just do his 11.15 a.m. Uh, daily press conferences outside Rideau Cottage, which get a bunch of softball questions from the media. Only questions from the preferred chosen reporters are allowed. And he does this, comes out for half an hour, then goes back into the shadows and, you know, plays Angry Birds or whatever it is he's doing in there. Whereas in Parliament, you can get a lot more of an accountability measure because it is your opponents, your political opponents, people whose title is literally opposition, that get to ask you questions. And also that get to have a say in overseeing and managing the legislation that's being put forward. So that's the difference here, because Justin Trudeau's defense is, listen, we're talking to Canadians lots. We're out having these press conferences. We're talking to reporters. Justin Trudeau's done a couple of interviews. So his rationale is that, yeah, we're, we're being mightily transparent here. Why do we need question periods? Whereas the Conservatives are saying, listen, if you want to be doing all of these things, you want to be uh, spending money, you want to be running these programs, you want to be doing all of this stuff, let us question you. Let us ask questions. Now, I do think that there is probably an overstatement of the role of question period here. I think question period is, in many respects, completely theatrical. I'm not sure that you can say it yields genuine answers. But a lot of the time, what you do get from question period is the contrast between this is the question that was asked, this was the answer. I don't think they're answering it. So I would say that the absence of an answer is sometimes in and of itself, the answer insofar as question period is concerned. But listen, as far as what's happening now, as it stands, Justin Trudeau has been saying that the Conservatives have been trying to make it so that all 338 MPs have to be back in Ottawa, which just isn't the case. There's no reason that the MPs could not reconvene as they did the last two times during the pandemic, which is to send a skeletal representation of the parties. Have I forget the exact breakdown, but keep the proportion of MPs from the NDP, the Bloc, the Conservatives, the Liberals, and even a Green, but not actually do it in a way that packs up the House of Commons so that everyone's speaking moistly on each other and all that sort of stuff. So when the Andrew Shears party, the Conservatives block the unanimous party or what Justin Trudeau wanted to be a unanimous party consent to suspend the seating that was supposed to happen on Monday... No one was saying that all 338 MPs would have to come back. Here was what Justin Trudeau claimed, however. It would be irresponsible for the House of Commons to resume tomorrow as scheduled on April 20th uh, with 338 MPs, their staff, uh, support staff in the House of Commons, security, people coming in from across the country at this particular point. Yeah, so Trudeau is pretending that the Conservatives basically want everyone there. They want to load up, have MPs flying from Yukon, from British Columbia, from Red Deer, Alberta, from uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, from Charlottetown, PEI, have a, a descending from all parts of the country and shove 338 people into the House of Commons, when in actuality, it just meant carry on the way they did the last two times. 
And Andrew Scheer, to his credit, called out on the weekend the fact that Justin Trudeau simply wasn't telling the truth. And it was actually a question from yours truly, but here was that exchange. Regarding the Prime Minister's claim that as it stands now, 338 MPs need to be back in Ottawa tomorrow, uh, is he lying? Well, he's saying something that's not true. Uh, it's just it's just false, and we, we've 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 already indicated for the past few weeks uh, since uh, this crisis first hit that we would not be uh, we would not be uh, that we would be respecting public health guidelines, and uh, that is our position. We've made that uh, known to to the other parties as well. So I don't know why he continues to say that. It's certainly not the case. And so when Canadians are judging as you know each political party on its approach to these negotiations and how best to have Parliament operate, they need to keep in mind that what the Prime Minister is saying is just not true. Now, we'll have an interview with Andrew Scheer later on in the show. It's not going to be as focused on the parliamentary aspect because there were some other things that I wanted to get into there, and you'll hear those very shortly in the show. But the reason I, I share that clip with you is twofold. For starters, just Call it like it is. If Justin Trudeau's lying, say he's lying. I, I think that would be the point that I would raise there. But beyond that, there is a lot of truth in the accusation that Trudeau is not telling the truth, as, as circular as that sounds. And the reason for that is that Trudeau is trying to basically make it seem like the Conservatives are being the reckless one. The, the Liberals are trying to rebrand a parliamentary seating as though it's like running around licking Wuhan doorknobs. That's basically how Trudeau is trying to do it. So, oh my goodness, how dare he just play fast and loose with our lives and MPs' lives and his own lives and our families' lives? When I'm sitting here like, well, no, Parliament sitting doesn't have to look like a regular sitting any other day of the year. It could just look like the other two emergency parliamentary sittings that have taken place. And all of this begs the question of why is parliamentary oversight so important? Why is it so important to have that oversight? And it isn't just about grandstanding. You know, Elizabeth May, who I think is just absolutely a shameless, shameless person, uh, has now uh, decided she's not content just criticizing Andrew Scheer for taking his family on that government jet from uh, Regina to Ottawa. But Elizabeth May has now said she never would have done the favor had she known he was just going to grandstand in Ottawa. And if we have that tweet up there, you'll see. And it's just a, a completely joyless and not just classless, but but actually, I'd say malicious uh, about face she's done, trying to make it seem like all of a sudden she's worthy of sainthood. And Andrew Scheer, uh, you know, had roped his family on that plane through some sort of false pretense, which is just so far from the truth. So you've got this accusation now that the conservatives are the ones holding up public health. The conservatives are the ones that, that are the problem here. When all the conservatives are saying is, hey, uh, last time the liberals wanted unchecked power, they were trying to ram forward a bill that would have given them the ability to spend money and raise taxes without parliamentary approval. Hey, we think that if anything, this is evidence that parliament should be sitting. And yeah, if the Liberals are going to have to keep going back to the drawing board on legislation, it stands to reason that you should have a mechanism in place for Parliament to be sitting and for parliamentarians to be dealing with this and doing what is their job. And remember that democracy doesn't get suspended in the midst of a pandemic. It may look a little different. Things are going to change in form. But the substance of what democracy is supposed to be and what Canada's government system is supposed to be should not change all that dramatically just because the realities have made it 
so that you can't have 338 people in a room. Now, I'm not resistant to the virtual parliament idea that Justin Trudeau has leaned on, but there's a problem with it. It just isn't there yet. When we have the virtual parliament, when that's set up and running, fine, we can reevaluate, but that is not where we are yet. And you have to, as Wayne Gretzky said, skate to where the puck is going, not where it is now. But you don't hit the puck where it's going. You have to hit the puck where it is right now. And I I know it's rare for me to do a soccer reference, but uh, that's uh, basically all I've got for you as far as the sports stuff is concerned. But listen, I mean, this whole thing is about Justin Trudeau not wanting to have oversight and accountability. And there's a reason for that. Look at the kind of stuff they're doing. There was a report last week that didn't get nearly the mainstream media attention it should have been, although there was a a CBC story, and I'm very grateful for that. Dominic LeBlanc, who's the president of the Privy Council, has said that the government is considering legislation that will target coronavirus misinformation. So if you knowingly spread misinformation that could harm people, that could be a federal offense under a law that the liberals in Canada are considering putting in. Now, I don't know how they would define misinformation. And this is where it gets into that age-old problem of, okay, if you want to go after it, that's fine, but who's coming up with the definition? And the reason I think this is so important is because a vast majority of the misinformation, I'd say, has been coming from the government. So is Theresa Tam going to be charged for saying that there's no human-to-human transmission of coronavirus and that the risk remains low? She said that back in January. Is Justin Trudeau going to be targeted for saying that uh, travel doesn't need to be restricted because that was misinformation? What about all the public health officials who told us we don't need to wear masks and masks actually make things worse before saying that, hey, masks are recommended and for travel required? All of these things were misinformation, apparently. So are they going to get charged? No. So at best, you can say that information is fluid. And as they learn more information, the recommendations change, which is why when government tries to take a black and white, this is wrong and therefore it should be illegal, you know it's going to go after people that are offering differing perspectives. Take hydrochloroquine, for example. I don't know a lot about it. I'm not a pharmacologist. All I know is what I'm reading. And this has become a drug that is central to a culture war that really has nothing to do with science. You've got a lot of people in the media in the U.S. that are against it because Trump was for it. And Donald Trump actually made a really funny joke about this at one of his press conferences last week where he said, and I don't know if I could find the clip for you, but he had said something along the lines of, oh, you know, I probably set it back by recommending it because he realized that there are a lot of people that will be against it just because he's for it. But the FDA did its due diligence. It's a malaria drug. They saw, hey, maybe it has a role in this. Now we've got some Canadian researchers looking into it. I don't know about the briefings with the public health officials, but I don't think Justin Trudeau has been asked one single question about it. The only time we've really had a a national discussion about drug coverage in Canada was when Jason Kenney said, and we talked about this on the show last week, that Alberta would look to peer countries like the US, like Australia, like the UK, and, and not wait for Health Canada's heel-dragging approach. But that was the only time we even got adjacent 
to the hydroxychloroquine discussion, which again, I'm not pushing for it. I don't know. But if someone shared an article that talked about the benefits of this and Health Canada hadn't approved it, would that be misinformation under the federal government's eyes? Look, I'm not speculating because I'm trying to make it seem like it's worse than it is. I'm speculating because I don't have faith that it won't be. I honestly do not have faith in the government that it won't be that bad. And that's why I'm very, very leery and actively resistant to any of these so-called anti-misinformation efforts. And I'm sorry, but if you can't even get something like a wage subsidy right, I don't trust you're going to be able to get something as nuanced as misinformation laws right without just throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I'm not even convinced there's that much bathwater there. I know that websites like Facebook and YouTube have all gone completely guns blazing on having these warnings that are popping up and people are having posts deleted and all of that. But the active misinformation and disinformation that they're supposedly combating, I'm just not seeing. Maybe you're seeing it more often than not. It's just political articles that seem to be getting censored and shut down that are not misinformation, that are just people's opinions and openly stated as being opinions. And that's the reality of it. Now, (laughs) Susan Delacorte, who I I know she's uh, someone who I probably have a a fair amount of political disagreements with, but I I do like her and get along with her. She had a piece in the Toronto Star, and the headline I think is very apt. Pierre Trudeau gave legal rights to Canadians. Justin Trudeau is borrowing a few of them back. Now, this comes on the heels of, I think it was like the 38th anniversary of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, so hardly a milestone anniversary by any stretch. But it is interesting that the anniversary falls while we are in a state of lockdown. And Susan Delacorte's point is that you cannot maintain civil liberties with all of the things that the government is doing right now. Now, I think where people will disagree is whether that's justified, whether all of these fall under that just absolutely abysmal, reasonable limits section of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that basically nullifies the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But it's a reminder that you do not have the right in Canada to just claim I'm a free citizen because you aren't right now. You absolutely aren't. And the good news is it seems we've had a bit of a slowdown in the major ticketing that we were seeing. I haven't heard of any really ridiculous uh, stories from the last couple days of like people being ticketed for rollerblading, although the crackdown of people using parks still continues. If you have a, a really funny one, send it my way. And by funny, I mean just one that makes you want to pull your hair out. I actually said on Twitter, I think it was Sunday or Saturday, whatever it was, I had made a, I don't even know if it's a joke, I'll say semi-joking, that who do I have to lobby to have bylaw officers declared non-essential workers? And everyone liked it and was like retweeting it and sharing it, except for a couple of bylaw enforcement officers who didn't particularly like it and (laughs) decided to uh, get engaged and start responding to tell me how wrong I was, which I was actually very grateful for because the more time the bylaw officer spend fighting with me on Twitter, the less time they're actually out there ticketing people for ridiculous things. So in in many ways, I may have saved a couple of people some $880 fines just by baiting uh, bylaw officers into Twitter fights, which wasn't even my intention because I I actually didn't even think that they were happy with what they were doing completely. But uh, it's not them. By the way, they aren't the problem. It's, It's the bylaws themselves. But if you create a bureaucracy and you create a mechanism to enforce it, you're going to focus on enforcement more than anything else. And and the problem is that when you create an apparatus to do this sort of stuff, 
it's going to fill its own purpose. It's going to uh, fulfill its own mandate by just continuing to really drive revenue. So yeah, I'm not saying that no bylaws are relevant, but the vast majority of them we could probably live without and on the whole be be a fair bit happier. So that was my, my Twitter fight of the week, which isn't actually a segment, but maybe it should be. In any case, we have got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. If you're an animal lover, you may want to tune out for the next 60 seconds here. A German zoo, which is facing a revenue crunch because like anything else that's recreational, they've had to close down, is looking at a proposal to possibly feed animals to each other as a way to fulfill the mandate that they need to feed animals that are expensive to feed. This is from a zoo in northern Germany, the uh, Neumunster Zoo which has a list of animals they'll have to slaughter first in the events of like in the event of like an apocalyptic scenario and they are finding that the animals have very large appetites the uh, zookeeper Verena Kaspari says it would be a last resort it would be unpleasant but even that would not solve the financial problems because they they would have to find other things to do long term so the seals and penguins need large quantities of fresh fish she says that they don't want to let animals starve. At worst, they would have to uh, euthanize some animals and feed some to the others. So zoos, which have, like, in many people's minds, been cemented as kind of like the movie Madagascar, where all the animals are just singing and dancing, are actually going to be like a bloodthirsty and a bloodbath type scenario here. Uh, some animals are, like, uh, trying to be the cute ones that they couldn't possibly get care take care of. I feel bad if I'm like a warthog or a hippo or something. You're like an ugly animal that I don't think anyone actually goes to the zoo to see. Like the otters are fine and the leopards are fine because everyone loves them. But you know, you got to be careful if you're like a hippo or a, or a warthog in any case. And, and also the biggest animal. I mean, so, I mean, maybe the elephants, people like elephants, but maybe the elephants need to be worried because, you know, one elephant could feed, you know, a lot more people, whereas you need like, I don't know, like 700 meerkats to feed as much as one elephant could. So Cost-benefit analysis, but only in Germany, and I said this <laughs> to someone the other day, only in Germany can donate or will have to kill all the animals constitute a charitable fundraising pitch. Like, True North's a charity, and we try to tell people, you know, all the things we're doing that warrant donations. Uh, we have not done, you know, if you don't donate, we're going to slaughter animals and feed them to each other. So and maybe if, if the zoo does well, maybe there's something to that. But in any case, on a more amusing note, an Australian family was supposed to have a European vacation before COVID-19 hit. And like many other people with their travel plans, they had to cancel things. So what the family did was recreate their 15-hour holiday flight in their living room. Now, this is a family from Newcastle, and Kirsty Russell and her husband Nathan came up with the idea of, in their home, outfitting it with security checks, flight attendants, custom-printed boarding passes, and they ended up doing 15 hours in these chairs, which have been reconfigured, and I don't know if they were supposed to be flying in business class. It looks like one of the girls there in the photo has gotten like one of those life flat seats. So good for her that she's actually done it. Uh, you've got the dad there playing on his iPad in his chair. I, it's funny though, because the things that they've recreated are like the worst parts of air travel, uh, but they managed to do it. So they started as a joke and said it was completely fun. They were live tweeting it. So as you see on Twitter here, Kirsty Russell said they were three hours into their flight 
they set up the lounge room as a cabin. The kids got all the leg room and the adults were stuck in the back seat. So uh, choosing seats was apparently not uh, done the best way. Uh, the 16-year-old son was the security officer. The nine-year-old daughter did baggage check. A uh, 14-year-old daughter welcomed on board. Then they all became passengers. And when you can get a 16-year-old boy into this sort of a role play scenario, you know that everyone's bored. Like when you can get him to be in there, he was like the Australian equivalent of the TSA. So uh, if they tried to bring any bottled water to their chairs, they surely wouldn't have been allowed to uh, to do it. But I love that. And they even had, if you can see there, I think it's McDonald's or something. They had had like meals on trays. So everyone got uh, the same thing, assembly line style. I, I love this. I actually think this is a really good idea. So if you have kids and you want to keep them busy for a while, pick like the longest flight imaginable from, I don't know, Toronto airport or Vancouver airport. So send them on like a Toronto to Bangkok living room flight or a Vancouver to Sydney living room flight and then just have at it. And maybe you can be in the business class cabin in the next room and they can all be slumming in an economy and watching whatever movies they want. But good on the Russell family for making the best of a bad situation. I hope you get to have that vacation at some point after all. So we can claim a bit of vindication now because for weeks we've been saying very clear, clearly four words, China lied, people died. China's numbers could not be trusted. And even though we had, of course, the Canadian government parroting China's line and China's lies by extension, Politburo Patty, the health minister saying that there's no indication China's numbers can't be trusted. Justin Trudeau saying, oh, now's not the time to deal with that. Well, last week on Friday, Wuhan itself revised its numbers. Wuhan, the first epicenter of this, the birthplace of this, the place that may have actually had the virus leak from a lab, has said that, oh, its death numbers were actually 50% higher than originally indicated. 50%. Now, this is, in the grand scheme of things, an increase of about 1,200 fatalities. Now, I still don't buy into it. But the fact that they admitted to being wrong again, and by the way, Wuhan and China more broadly have had a string of recalculations and changing numbers again, but the fact that they've admitted these numbers were wrong makes it look all the worse that Politburo Patty was so confident in China's numbers. So now, and I, I mentioned this last week with Candace on True North Update, this means that Canada's health minister, the Canadian government, had more confidence in China's numbers than apparently China has in China's numbers. So when Politburo Patty, you may remember, criticized a reporter asking about it of feeding conspiracies, does this mean that the Chinese regime is now feeding conspiracies? Are they in on the conspiracy? Are they part of this? Has it ballooned that far out of control? So at this point, the only one who's right is Politburo Patty and everyone else is wrong. So this is not surprising to me. And I don't, by the way, award China any brownie points or gold stars for doing this. I think they probably looked at their numbers and said, ah, oh, no one's going to believe those. So let's change them a bit. But now that they've revised it, all of these people that were shilling for the Chinese communist regime look completely terrible once again. So interestingly, Donald Trump at a press conference last week was pointing to these numbers. And I think he said pretty candidly, does anyone believe these? He was talking about China's numbers and Iran's numbers. And I wrote a, a column about this last week. Iran is another place where the numbers are just so vastly different from the real story on the ground. But the thing when I saw Donald Trump's presser that I found so fascinating is that, yeah, I actually think there are a ton of people that do believe those numbers and they all seem to be in the Canadian government. 
So how bad that China has admitted its numbers were wrong, the numbers that uh, the liberals in Canada were like, oh, no, you can't criticize these. You can't question those. And it goes down to this complete deference to the World Health Organization. And that is such a, a disaster for Canada, for Canada's autonomy, for Canada's credibility, and for the credibility of the people that are supposed to be steering the ship in Canada right now. We've got to take a quick break when we come back. My interview with Conservative leader Andrew Scheer. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Certainly, we've been doing our part to hold the government to account throughout this crisis and beyond the crisis as well. But the person who has the official task at hand of doing that is Andrew Scheer, the leader of Her Majesty's Loyal Opposition, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. He joins me on the line now from Ottawa. Mr. Scheer, good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So let's talk first off about what your role is here, because I think there's a lot of... I'll say concern from people that whenever you criticize the government, you're violating what the government has established and what you've established as being that Team Canada spirit. Well, uh, of course, in a crisis like this, when Canadians want to see their institutions work and, and they want to see collaboration and people put aside differences, of course, the nature of the opposition has changed as well. Uh, we're keeping our focus on the health crisis, on the pandemic, the economic fallout from that. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's not healthy to be challenged or to be uh, corrected. We've had a number of examples where the Liberals have announced a program, major shortcomings and gaps. We've called for action. We've uh, raised our voice, uh, represented people who are falling through those cracks. And we've seen the government amend their approach. So it's still essential. It's not just healthy. It's essential in a democracy to have the government being challenged and held to account to make sure that they get it right. Let's talk about how they're not doing that in your view, because one of the big problems I've been seeing and, and talking especially to small business owners is that all of these relief measures that have come out, whether it's the emergency response benefit, the wage subsidy, the emergency business account, for starters, the graduation of this it's not all all been about here's a, a program apply for it every step of the way it seems like the programs needed to be rejigged and, and revamped but even still with every one of these changes there are huge swaths of canadians sole proprietors in particular that seem to be excluded from these programs and i know that you're in a, a bit of a tricky situation in that you're in an opposition role so you can ask the government to change it and you can vote against stuff theoretically when parliament is sitting but what What's your read on this? I mean, do you think that there are too many Canadians that are in between these programs? Uh, for sure. And uh, one of our frustrations is that the government makes an announcement. Uh, we start pointing out gaps. They say, well, we'll look at that. And then a week or two later, they make the changes. What we'd like them to do is to show us their legislation, show us their programs. While it's still in the, in the design phase, uh, we... Uh, and I'm not just talking about conservative MPs, every single MP is hearing from small business owners, uh, uh, contractors, owner operators, and they're getting that feedback in real time saying, you know, my company's not eligible for that or I'm not eligible for that. While these programs are still being designed, we members of Parliament are the best focus group there is when it comes to this type of thing because we're in our communities, we're hearing from people directly. So we'd like to see them bring us in on the front end. We believe that would provide more clarity 
And one of the toughest things right now is when, when you talk to people and they say, I haven't paid my rent this month. We're halfway through. Uh, I don't know what my landlord is going to do to me. I don't know what I'm going to be eligible for. I don't have any cash flow because I haven't had a customer in, in over 30 days. The government tells me not to worry that more is coming, uh, but my credit card's getting maxed out. And I just, you know, like it's a real, there's a real sense of urgency here. And that's what we're going to continue to push for is, is uh, getting it right the first time as much as possible. One of the big things right now, of course, you and the Conservatives pushing for more parliamentary oversight, having more sessions like the couple of emergency sessions we've had thus far with a more pared down, bare bones uh, caucus arrangement from all parties. The concern that I have with this is that given it is taking so long to get it right and multiple drafts, multiple revisions, does pushing for these sessions not prolong the gaps here and, and ultimately make it more difficult for Canadians in need of these supports to access them? Well, I actually believe it can have the opposite effect. When you have regular question periods, when you have uh, ministers in the chamber, you're allowing for members of parliament to, to get up on a Monday and say, hey, I've got a letter here from a constituent who says that they're ineligible. Uh, we need to do something about this. They'll hear that in, in public. They'll, they'll, they'll see the other MPs saying the same thing. And throughout the week, they can come back with the fixes. What's happening now is that there's very little ability to communicate directly with uh, the ministers. Uh, you know, we've had uh, in, in the past month or so, we've had a few uh, conference calls. We've had a few appearances uh, at committee uh, uh, here, here in the House. So regular accountability sessions, I actually believe, will speed up the development process of these programs and get them right the first time because the, the members of parliament will be doing a lot of the work for the government, will be identifying the gaps for them, saying, hey, these are the types of people that need assistance here. And that can help on the front end design these programs in a better way. A couple of weeks ago, Health Minister Patty Haidu said her words, no indication, unquote, that the numbers from China about the death toll and infection rate of COVID-19 there couldn't be trusted. This morning, of course, we have acknowledgement from Wuhan that their numbers were wrong. They've revised them and increased them by 50%. So quite a significant correction here. And still, when asked, Justin Trudeau would not address the lack of really reliability of China numbers, and that was at his Friday press conference. Now, I know you have been very skeptical of China on this and, and on many things, and I, I think is necessary in Canada, but what do you make of it that the government, even when China admits its numbers were wrong, still won't accept that China's data are anything less than trustworthy? Uh, it is outrageous, and in the I think the, the former ambassadors from Canada to China put it best when they said this is an embarrassing posture. It's, it's an embarrassing uh, position for Canada to be more apologetic for the Chinese regime than the Chinese regime itself is. Uh, but, you know, this is uh, this is all part of, of Justin Trudeau's view. You know, he, he admires the basic dictatorship of China. He went to China seeking a free trade deal when our free trade with the U.S. was, was, was being uh, threatened. He uh, you know, he refuses to respond to the fact that there are two Canadians being held illegally. China's put uh, blocks on our exports of canola. This government has yet to respond in any way. I don't trust anything coming out of a communist government. Uh, I don't trust anything that comes out of, uh, of a government like, like the regime in, in China on anything. Uh, now we're making life and death decisions about how we're going to respond to the pandemic here. And the source information is coming from China. So I think it's time to, to ensure that our decisions are based on a more broad 
sources, uh, uh, sources of information much more broadly uh, than just the, the WHO. At this time, there are Canadian experts who have called for different action earlier. The Canadian military intelligence report that warned us that this virus was going to be big. So it's continuing, it's just very confusing, it's not, it's not confusing, it's outrageous, it's unacceptable for the government to continue to vouch for China. I mean, Minister Haiji was asked specifically about the, the, the quality of the data, she vouched for the government of China. It's ridiculous. Well, and that's ultimately been, I think, the stopgap here that a lot of people have said as well, the World Health Organization numbers, not China's numbers. Well, when the World Health Organization is populating its data from the numbers received from China without question, we have to look at their reliability problem. And I guess the question that I would put to you, Mr. Scheer, is if you were prime minister now, what would you do to reevaluate that relationship, not just with China, but with the WHO? Because there's been a lot of deference to them as an international body that right now I don't think squares up with where most people would say their credibility is. Exactly. And remember, this is the same agency that a few years ago hired Robert Mugabe to be the goodwill ambassador. So th these organizations, especially you know the ones that come uh, through the, the United Nations, when we look at the, the types of countries that have so much influence at the United Nations, nations and, and the uh, institutions that are affiliated with it. Uh, they don't share our values. They don't share our democratic principles. We have to uh, view things that come out of that with a great deal of skepticism. And as you say, when the World Health Organization data is populated by data from China, garbage in, garbage out. You know, you, you, we, we, we have to have a healthier dose of skepticism when we're looking at that. That's why when we have our domestic agencies, our military intelligence warning us, we have to give greater uh, you know, weight. We have to take that more seriously when it's coming from our experts here that we can trust, that we know don't have a political agenda when they're providing raw data uh, to officials. Uh, and what I would like to see is this government ensure that Canadian officials at the WHO answer for their actions. Uh, remember, it was a Canadian official in a press conference who pretended that he didn't hear a question about Taiwan, but whether or not Taiwan would be included in, uh, in the WHO's efforts. Just absolutely uh, bizarre to watch. It was like something out of an old uh, you know, uh, movie from about the Soviet Union, pretending not to hear the question, pretending that there was difficulty uh, on the connection, then moving on to the next question. Why would a Canadian official act like that? Are, they, are, are Canadian officials trying to protect the, the, the government of China? Why not stand up for Taiwan and its need to have uh, participation in the global fight against this pandemic? So a lot of serious questions, and our government needs to be held accountable for their dependence on the WHO and their refusal to hold China accountable. I think a lot of that brings us to skepticism that I think is growing with Dr. Teresa Tam as well. And I think it's important to note she's not a politician or at least not supposed to be a politician, but she does have a seat at the WHO. She's been very linked to the WHO through a number of committees and other projects. She's also the most uh, vocal member of the Canadian government, apart from Justin Trudeau, I'd say, and, and Christian Freeland on matters of Canada's response to the coronavirus. Do you think there is a, a conflict of interest there, that this woman is beholden to the WHO as well as to Canada? Well, we certainly want to get answers as to why there is so much con uh, contradictory information. Uh, early on, the uh, recommendation from uh, from our own agency here was not to impose travel restrictions uh, early on the, the instructions from dr. Tam was that you know not to wear masks so there certainly have, have been contradictory messages we need to, we need to look at how China has influence on many different types of institutions obviously the WHO is, is front and center right now 
Uh, in addition to that, uh, you know, uh, there's been a lot of alarms uh, raised about influencing universities. Uh, there's been uh, intelligence reports about how uh, the government of China influences other types of civil society. There's been warnings from countries like Australia about how uh, they perceive the threat of, of influence from the government of China. I think anytime you have Canadian officials that, that you know, wearing two hats or involved in two or three different organizations, we have to be very sure, sure that there are accountability measures put in place. I don't believe that we should let the government off the hook and, and let them pin all the blame on Dr. Tam here. Uh, there needs to be common sense filters applied to things. Uh, we had a shocking news story this week that the government, after the 2015 election, the Liberal government, dumped millions of pieces of personal equipment from the pandemic stockpile. Uh, the previous Conservative government had built up this stockpile, regularly rotated, making sure that it was all up to date and, and none of it was expired. This government cut uh, by tens of millions of dollars the budget for that, dumped material without replacing it. So this is the same government that can find $50 million to give to MasterCard, uh, $12 million to Loblaws. But when it comes to making sure that we have enough masks and gowns and gloves in case of a pandemic, from the very department that is responsible for planning a pandemic, it's ridiculous and outrageous. So I don't want, I don't want this government to be able to scapegoat anybody. They're the ones that didn't apply the common sense test to many of these decisions. They need to be held accountable. I just want to make sure I understand the point you made earlier in that response, though, Mr. Shear. Are you saying that the Canadian government or elements of the Canadian government are, in your view, under the influence of the Chinese government, of the Chinese regime? What, what, no, well, what, what I'm saying is that there, are, there have been warnings from our, our security partners about how the government of China tries to influence civil society in Canada, try to influence the conversations about it, everything from, uh, from, from uh, news outlets, news outlets in, in terms of um, um, some of the, the, the publications uh, that uh, that have connections to mainland China. So those are the types of things that, that we say, look, we have to take a look at our relationship with China. This is a regime that has continually showed that it does not share our values. It, it abuses human rights at home. Uh, it, it has acknowledged that it has engaged in hacking exercises of other governments. Uh, it is not being upfront and open and transparent in the middle of a health crisis. Oh, and let's not forget, if we're holding two Canadians hostage. Uh, so, you know, we've got Canadians literally being held uh, illegally in China. We've got all this body of evidence that they are, are not, uh, you know, um, uh, a trusted ally, not a trusted partner in so many of these things. They're an important trading partner. We need to have, uh, we need to recognize that we can, uh, we can benefit from trade with them. But I think it's time that we have uh, a rethink of how much uh, confidence and dependency this government seems to place in that regime. One final question I have for you here. Obviously, this has been a, a very different year than a lot of people, including the Conservative Party of Canada, thought it was going to be the leadership race put on hold here. Does anything like that really change the decision that you had made to step down? Or do you think that when the leadership race is restarted, if it is, there's going to be a, an entirely new uh, scenario that might make you reevaluate uh, your role in the Conservatives? Well, you know, when I made the decision to step down, it really was because I, uh, I, I could see the, the, the months ahead and, and, uh, and the toll that the last three years had taken on my family. And I, and I knew I couldn't do both. I, I couldn't be a good dad and a good leader of the opposition that was, uh, you know, that, that would have been required to 
do all the things I had been doing for the past two years. I, when I ran for the leadership the first time, I think many people did expect that it would probably take two elections uh, back in 2015. If, if you had told conservatives that we'd uh, hold the liberals to a minority in the next election, uh, you know that, that that would have been seen very positively. Obviously, expectations were raised, and and uh, and the party, while we did very well in many areas, fell short of our, our goal, which was to form the government. I am very much uh, at peace with the decision I've made. I'm working very hard uh, leading this caucus, making sure that we stay united and focused and ready to hand over the keys to the next leader in a position that will make sure that we can win the next election. But I'm also really enjoying being able to spend time with my family and uh, go, going to their, well, not going to so many of their activities right now, <laughs> but uh, uh, before the health crisis hit, it was uh, great to be the one to take them to school events and, uh, and, and things like that. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to handing the reins over to the next leader. Yeah, the silver lining of all of this is even more time with the family than you would imagine. So I appreciate very much uh, that response and your time today, Andrew Shear, leader of the Conservatives. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andrew. That was Andrew Scheer, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada here on The Andrew Lawton Show. We'll wrap things up in just a couple of moments here. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. My thanks to Conservative leader Andrew Scheer for coming on the program. And as you can tell from my shirt, that was pre-recorded. We weren't pretending it was live or pulling one over on you. In fact, we released it as a standalone earlier just to make sure it wasn't going to be dated. But uh, that was from Friday for anyone who was wondering. But my thanks to Andrew Scheer, to all of those who tuned into the show, who've written in, who've sent me emails. My email address, if you want to touch base, is andrew at andrewlawton.ca. We'll be back in a couple of days with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you, God bless and good day Canada. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.